it's kind of interesting. We're trying to apply a traditional value to non-traditional students. And the traditional value is when, when you went to, when you get admitted to a traditional institution, it, they have an obligation to try and make you successful. They've admitted you, you now they're going to do everything they can to enable you to graduate. And that, that's, they have that obligation. We have that obligation. You know, every student that we admit, it's not like you'll never hear anybody at UMass Global blaming a student if they're unsuccessful, right? It's not the student's fault. We, we accepted them. We accepted them because we think they could be successful and it's our obligation to do everything we can to make them successful. and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. For today's episode, we are speaking with the founding chancellor and only chancellor of Brandman University, which is now UMass Global. Gary Brom has served at the helm of this institution for a very long time, and the trajectory of the institution under his leadership is nothing short of transformational. We will include his full bio in the show notes so that you can see the wide and deep scope of his professional career. But for now, Gary, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Uh, Melissa, thank you for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Now, we like to start our conversations by learning a little bit about our guests. And I think our listeners would be very interested in knowing how you got into higher ed in the first place. I believe you were a biology major as an undergrad, and then you pivoted and picked up an MBA. So that's a great combination, the science and the business. What's the backstory that eventually leads to your current role? Uh, and are there some key influences along the way that you can point to as being especially important? Sure. Yeah, it's, you know, my background didn't lead me to higher ed. I, I uh, got a, uh, my bachelor's degree and then I got my, an MBA, and actually I'm a CPA as well. I worked at a, what, what you may recall big eight firms back in the day. I think there's only four of them now. And so I was uh, 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 recruited to head a, a uh, be the CFO of a company uh, that went private in San Diego. So I relocated from my home uh, and family relocated to San Diego. And, uh, and uh, within a year of my relocating, the, uh, the company, which was owned by a New Zealand investment company, was up for sale. And so I had to look for something. And this is back in the late 80s during the savings and loan crisis. And there wasn't much industry down in San Diego, which is where it's located. And so I looked around for what could I do to not relocate the family again. And a National University uh, was looking for a chief financial officer. Uh, at the time, they were on probation with WASC. Uh, they had just defaulted on their California Educational Facility Authority bonds, their CIFA bonds, and had issued 15% junk bonds. And so they needed a, 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 a new CFO. And so I took that because it was an opportunity to keep the family in San Diego. And, and I loved it. I did it for five years. We, we, uh, we, we got off of probation with WASP. We refinanced the bonds uh, a couple of times uh, and, uh, 
And then I had the opportunity, uh, I was recruited uh, by Chapman University, um, which had a uh, university college kind of off-campus operations, kind of similar to what National did, not on the same scale, um, and their traditional campus. And, and I became their CFO uh, over time, becoming their chief operating officer. So I joined there in 94, and uh, and uh, you know worked under Jim Doty, the president who was the president there for 30 years, an absolutely incredible leader, transformed uh, Chapman University, really my mentor. It was working with Jim that really we looked at what the opportunities were for university college, and uh, and so uh, which led to you know where I am today. But but yeah, I, I I did not go to school with the intention of of you know uh, being a you know being a part of the higher ed uh, uh, administration. Um, although when I back when I was in college, I was the uh, AS director of finance. As it turns out, you know my good friend was student body president. You know was at Cal State Northridge. And so I had I had some background in it, but anyway, I was, it was a very fortunate turn of events. Well, and I I'm struck by I I can only imagine the study of biology, which involves an understanding of systems in some in some ways, in combination with the business, must have served you very very well in terms of how you look at the higher ed context in which you have been leading. Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, biologists are, are trained to be very objective and look at the facts and try and figure things out. And I think that ends up being good background for a lot of different areas. And yes, it was especially helpful uh, as I went into business and I learned business skills and was able to apply kind of scientific technique to business. Sure. So the lesson for young people starting out is that never think that the major you uh, may study is going to be a linear path. Um, which I think that's certainly uh, proven by your own your own history and story. Exactly. Yeah. So you were serving as executive vice president for finance and administration and chief operating officer of Chapman when you were tapped, I believe, in two thousand and nine to lead a new institution called Brandman University. And it was shortly after that I think you and I met at a conference. We were both speaking with academic impressions. I still remember that original conversation. I was fascinated by the story of how Chapman decided to uh, give birth essentially to this new institution. So can you tell us uh, what was the impetus for creating this new entity? How was it structured and why in the eyes of the leadership and the board did you think it was even necessary at that point to create a new distinct institution? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you know in the in the you know 2005 2006 time range it was the time then the University of Phoenix was really growing, mm -hmm. and non traditional higher education typically focused for profit at that point was happening, and so and and I had come from National University, and I realized the power of if if every decision you make is based on what's best for your non traditional students. I mean, you know, as part of a traditional institution, you realize that the, you know, the the university college, which we had, you know, that, you know, how many decisions did we make in regards to various important decisions that you have to make as university you know, leadership actually benefited, you know, those students. That was rarely a consideration. So we knew that a focus, I, I knew that a focus on, on non-traditional students would really benefit university college. At the same time, it was clear that you know the needs of non-traditional students are very different than traditional students, 
And to really do a good job of it, it's hard to do it in an institution that tries to do both. So it was, you know, you know, and working with Jim Doty and the you know, visionary leader willing to take chances. You know, we talked about, well, should we take University College and make it a separate nonprofit institution? And so that's what we did. And I was, you know, I, and I took the lead in doing that. And, you know, we, we got approval from our accreditor first from WASC. Uh, who said, yeah, you, you can do this, you know, you know, let us know the activation date and uh, when it would, would become separate because it's quite a transition to separate a, a you know, what was University College into a separate nonprofit regionally accredited institution. And then as part of that transition, you know, I had to build the board and I built the board and our structure and everything else. And, um, uh, uh, you know, a member of the Brandman Foundation was on our board. And, and I spoke to him and said, hey, you know, this is really a unique opportunity. How many times do you really get to name an entire institution? Now, it was 2009. It was in the midst of the, of the financial crisis and the economy was really weak and everything. But the Brandman Foundation stepped up and, and gave us the naming donation. And that's how we became Brandman University. But the real key was that we wanted was to take the Chapman values on quality and student success and apply it to non-traditional students, but do everything we could to make those non-traditional students successful. Mm, boy, that's very, very smart. So as you look back now with the advantage of hindsight, right? Uh, what do you consider uh, the most significant leadership lessons that you have taken away from that era? What worked, what didn't work? What are you most proud of? And is there anything that you would have done differently? The most important leadership lesson I learned was how important vision, mission, and values are. So one of the first things we did was we, you know, as part of separating, we went through the process and as part of rebranding process of, of identifying and working with the community on our vision, mission, and values. And then we used that to hire everybody. The number one lesson was the, the culture is the most important thing getting people who understand your culture, especially with faculty, right? And, and so we, we were fortunate to hire faculty and have faculty already who embraced, you know, our vision, mission, and values. And then as we went forward to try and do all the crazy stuff that we did, the innovative stuff we did, they embraced it. When you get that kind of, uh, of, of you know, across the board support for your vision, mission, values, Everybody's moving in the same direction and it makes a huge difference. And, and a big part of that was um, people who are willing to take chances, who embrace change. It's kind of interesting, you know, over time as we, as we separated from Chapman, you know, initially Chapman provided all of our services and then we started taking over various services and, and departments would get split up. Some people wanted to be a part of Chapman, the prestige, the, you know, the traditional institution and everything else. Some people like, you know, the change and the excitement of doing something new and special. And they're kind of different kind of people. So it really worked that we were able to, you know, to build a really strong team that enjoyed change, that, that was willing to take chances, that understood that you didn't, you know, no, no one, you know, would bet a... Uh, hundred percent on on everything and and that that's how it goes you know you know what did you know what didn't really work well it's kind of interesting i when we originally did it i thought one of the advantages was that we were going to share certain services with chapman 
um, like the like the computer system and other things, uh, because I thought that gave us economies of scale that would be a competitive advantage. Um, but you know, after we separated, you know, all that stuff was under Chapman. It had been under me, right? The number one item on our list didn't make the top ten on their list, and so. You know, over time, we you know, realized that, uh, you know, I thought that was going to be a big advantage. Over time, we basically took over everything, including our own system. Shared services, I thought was going to be more effective and competitive advantage. I was, I was wrong on that because, uh, you know, our team wanted to do things a certain way. And, you know, we really were separate institutions looking at the world differently. And we finally had the chance to do it our way. And so, which we, you know, which we thought was, was best for our our students. Obviously, the thing that I'm, I'm most proud of is, is building, you know, it's building a great team that produced best in class student success. I mean, that's that's what we were all about. You know, we always looked at grad rates and default rates. Our, our default rates, you know, is four percent, four point one percent now. And um, our grad rates, if you compare them to anybody else, you know, it, that serves similar student body, you know, are are you know are incredible. One of the things that happens, you know, it, when you do something like what we do is you, you get some stuff right and you get some stuff wrong. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is to, if you get something wrong, you, you, you don't hide it, you identify it, you fix it, you move on. And so you don't really focus on it, right? So that, that, that's, that's important. But if, if I had to <clears throat> say big picture wise, it's really kind of an interesting decision because in, in 2000, and in six and seven, when we when we separated, I always felt that the for profits thought that it was more important to spend their money on advertising quality education than actually investing in a quality education. And I always felt that it's better for us to invest in a quality education. So when the decision was made, where are you going to spend your money? Was it marketing or was it on student services or you know, et cetera? We always, you know, the marketing always came second in, in the budget process. And so, you know, what, what makes an institution successful? Is it because we have, you know, you know, super high success rate of our students or we're super large? What's more important? Anyway, so we we you know selected the the you know, you know, making our students successful. And we probably could have, you know, spent a little bit more time building our brand and doing things that uh, that would have, you know, grown, maybe grown a little bit more. But the fact is that, you know, um, you know, we really always were focused on our students' success. Oh, there's so much good wisdom wrapped up in all of that that you just shared. You know, first of all, the comment about culture. Was it Peter Drucker who said it's the culture? Yeah, it's strategy. The culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, which I've it's never true. forgotten. Yeah, so I'm, I'm reminded of that. I think your comment about the need to own mistakes as a leader and then move on is so critical. I mean, we've, we've both, I know, seen cases uh, where that hasn't been the case and it, it, it never bodes well either for the leader or for the institution. Um, and so having that transparency around the fact that leaders are human, they make mistakes, but you gotta keep going and move on. Um, and then the, the point about the shared resources, you know, I, I uh, chuckled inside as you said that because I can't tell you how many times I've heard presidents or provosts uh, talk about how difficult they find it to get other institutions, even in their backyard, to share resources as a way of cost savings. It's just not in our DNA, maybe. It's a very no. difficult thing to do. So that it was even challenging for you all 
um, is is interesting in that regard. Yeah, you know, in, in regards to mistakes, by the way, I would, you know, when I do a state of the university, I would try and feature a mistake I made. Oh. I thought it was always important to say that we did this, but we're doing that kind of a thing. I think that that I think that's really important. I mean, I have a good, pretty good batting average, I'd like to think, but but nobody bats a thousand, and as I said, and and you know, I, I think it's important that everybody know that, and everybody, and that gives everybody the comfort themselves to feel that they could take chances. Yeah, absolutely, and that goes to the culture again. You're shaping a culture where people are not afraid to fail, um, within reason. So, yeah, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So the emergence of UMass Global then is a very interesting story as well. And I think a wonderful reflection of the current higher ed landscape. So can you walk us through a little bit of the history in terms of how did you get here uh, from Brandon to UMass Global? Um, what are the key transition points? What was the impetus for this change? Why now? And then question I'm curious about and I because I my institution is in the uh, the backyard of UMass you know so one of the things that people have wondered aloud about is how exactly does this work what's the structural relationship between Brandman the UMass system and then Chapman if there is any right well let me start with that so so you know I mean when we were a part of Chapman um, you know, we're, as a nonprofit, you know, we are, there's no ownership, right? There's control. And mm -hmm. so when we were part of Chapman, Chapman appointed our board. And so, I mean, it's pretty, pretty and they could, they could uh, replace our board members whenever they wanted. And so when we first started, uh, and, and the world has changed a little, it's kind of interesting. When we first started, our, our bylaws required that 70% of our board members had to be Chapman trustees. Our board is a board of regents, and so we, you know, to avoid confusion. So our board of regents was seventy percent Chapman trustees. Over time, I think that we we, we changed the bylaws to make it fifty percent. Um, and and UMass uh, has the same control. They they appoint our board, but but now uh, you know our board is you know is a part of you know of uh, accreditation requirements. The the board is required to be a majority independent. So even though they select our board, the majority can't be UMass folks, as we're a separate nonprofit, and and you know everybody has fiduciary responsibility to our institution, um, and so the the majority of, of board members have to be independent. And but then again, you know they they are so they control us through the board. So we are an affiliate of the of the University of Massachusetts. So what was the real impetus of it? And you know it kind of gets to the what's going on in higher ed. Uh, to be honest, the you know. You know, non-traditional higher ed has a lot of technology. It's very tech-based, and so that's really important. Um, and um, you know, it's almost like a high-tech business. And as you know, in a high-tech business, economies of scale matter. Yeah. And so, you know, it was it you know being efficient. Um, you know, I, I, if we're gonna, if you're going to develop a course, are you better off developing you know that course for a hundred students or a hundred thousand students? You know, I mean, and so, you know, that that's really important. The marketing marketing is is, you know, the marketing world has changed a lot in, in, in the last 20 years. And, you know, the most efficient marketing is national. And the, the way that is most efficient is with a nationally known brand. Mm -hmm. And so Brandman wasn't a nationally known brand. 
We were a strong regional. I mean, over time, could we have made it over the hump? One never knows. I would expect that, you know, and we did some things to, to you know, like I'll talk about, you know, uh, in regards to competency-based education, other things that I think gave us a competitive advantage. But regardless, there is a certain efficiency that comes with a nationally known brand and being able to you know, market nationally that you can't just get as a regional. You, you can't do it. And so, you know, so, you know, I, I felt the meg, you know, the growth of the you know, emergence of the mega university, especially for non-traditional higher ed, is really important, um, and uh, that was a major impetus. You know, we could have, we didn't spend. You could spend hundreds of millions of dollars building a brand, or you can take what we've done and best practices across everything we've done, uh, and then uh, combined with a incredible nationally known brand. And, and that way you do it without spending that money and you can continue to focus your resources on the students. So it seemed like a slam dunk to me, you know, given where higher ed is going and, uh, and you know, where, what our position was and, you know, the opportunities in Massachusetts and what a great system it is and how we divert, you know, enable them to be more diversified and serving, you know, the students that, that are, you know, that have some college with no degree, you know, that it was just a real opportunity. So you just to make sure I'm understanding this. So UMass Global is nonprofit then, correct? Because it's Brandman, but with the new name, and the legal relationship is you're an affiliate of the UMass system. Correct. Did I get that right? Okay. You got that exactly. Yeah. So basically, basically what happened is we, you know, Brandman University changed its name. Yeah. That's one, and two is the people who appoint the Brandman board. Are different, and and the bylaws changed to require instead of you know instead of the current requirement that at least half of them have to be you know uh, uh, Chapman people. Now it's less than half you know can be right. UMass people. And so, have you been able? And maybe it's too soon, but I'm I'm curious uh, how much independence you think you'll be able to retain as an affiliate of the system. Well, and that was that was you know one of the the uh, the things that the system tried to preserve the you know the importance okay. of of us being independent you know as a private you know and we're very nimble we have to uh -huh. be nimble and and even amongst you know private nonprofits we're we're uh, you know one of the most nimble and and so they wanted to preserve that that's not necessarily a strength of a a campus-based online program at, at, at a, you know, at a public system. So right. we can, we can bring that and we can bring that innovation and we can work together and do best practices and other things. And so, um, but, but yeah, so structure, basically it was a name change and, and yep. a change in, and who points the board. I'm, I'm going to be a little facetious here, but did somebody one day wake up and say, Hmm, maybe we should align with UMass. I mean, how, how, how exactly did it come about, if you're able to tell me? I can tell you a little bit. Yeah, so, okay. I mean, the, uh, we've been looking, right? We, uh, you know, I've, we've, we've, you know our, our team understands the environment, right? Yeah. And, and the, the need to get to scale and become national. And so there was an article in Inside Higher Ed uh, where uh, Marty Meehan, the president of UMass, had hired uh, 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 Parthenon to do a study and they published the results of that study where they were deciding if they should uh, uh, build or buy 
a institution to serve this need within the system. Yep. yep. And so I spoke to the folks at Chapman and said, I want to call these guys. And so we arranged a call and uh, 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 we uh, ended up speaking uh, to Don Kilburn, who's the CEO of UMass Online. And, uh, and then it went from there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I remember that article. I, I uh, So that's interesting. So, uh, you know, some of the best ideas uh, come about as a result of that instinct, right? When you read or you see something and then you take the next step, sometimes it doesn't work. But in your case, that was absolutely um, a good call to make. And so does does Chapman, so is Chapman still structurally a part of the picture or not? Not at all? Okay. Not at all. Yeah. They, we, we, we still, uh, uh, during tra the transition, we still share library services and they do a great okay. job of doing that. Or we're in the process of, of, of separating that, that being the last of the shared services. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. So how's the transition going so far? And for others who might be considering something like this, do you have any advice or lessons to share? Yeah, I mean, so obviously having the brand is very exciting to everybody and it's going well, but it's a transition. And so, you know, there, there's changes. They, they have ways of doing things. We have ways of doing things and they aren't necessarily the same and one's not necessarily better than the other. And so, you know, I think, I think when I spoke, uh, at the event we were at back uh, uh, back a number of years ago, one of the things I talked about was how I always felt it was important that when I was working my way up in the organization, that if I felt, felt something was really important and I thought it should be done this way, and it didn't go that way, it wasn't, I wasn't mad at my boss, I was mad at me because if I really thought it was the right thing to do, how come I couldn't convince him? 
What did I need to do? What did I need to change? How could I present it in a way where people would understand? Well, it's the same thing. We're working together to try and figure out best, best ways of doing things. And we, you know, we've obviously come to our way of doing it over the years. And so, but some things need to change. And so you just need a positive attitude and a way of communicating and, and you don't win them all. And you, and, and you shouldn't win them all. I mean, we, we, did, I, I, we do a lot of that things well, but yeah, not, not everything. And so, you know, th so there's a certain amount of that you have to get used to. Um, but that's a natural part of, of this kind of, uh, of a transition. Um, but in general, it's going really well. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. So can you tell me a little bit more about the vision for UMass Global? What role do you see UMass Global playing within the broader higher education landscape as we go forward? How are you thinking about differentiating UMass Global vis-a-vis -vis the other mega universities? I, I guess I'm really looking for your, your aspirations. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's not our intent to be the biggest, right? It's not our intent to compete on price. And it's not our intent to compete on being the easiest way to get a degree, mm. right? I mean, you know, our students, they, they have a certain amount of work they have to do. And, you know, and they, they now we, we, it's important that, that their expectations are appropriate, you know, appropriately aligned with what our expectations are. Um, and so, you know, so I don't know that our approach is gonna enable us to be the biggest. You know, can you say, well, we wanna be the best, right? You know, so, you know, but, but we remain focused on providing more opportunities to students to have a quality education where they get the focus necessary to optimize the, their, their chance of success. And so, yeah, we can serve a lot more students. I mean, now we're just regionally doing it so we could do that nationally. There's a big market for students who are type students. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we you know, remain focused on, you know, being a high quality provider. It's kind of interesting. We're trying to apply a traditional value to non-traditional students and the traditional values when when you went to when you get admitted to a traditional institution it, they have an obligation to try and make you successful they've admitted you you now they're going to do everything they can to enable you to graduate and that that's they have that obligation we have that obligation you know every student that we admit it's not like you'll never hear anybody at umass global blaming a student if they're unsuccessful right? It's not the student's fault. We, we accepted them. We accepted them because we think they could be successful and it's our obligation to do everything we can to make them successful. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And it, it's, it strikes me that you've really carried through the, the values that were important uh, with the founding of Brandman, that that seems to be a through line now into the next, the next era um, as UMass Global, which is, which is terrific. So Thank now you. I'm interested in your insights about what some have described as this growing imbalance in the US higher education system with a small but growing number at the top comprised of the elites and the mega universities um, often created uh, these days by the coming together of uh, one or more institutions such as the case uh, in, in your case and then a decreasing number at the bottom, comprised of those small niche-oriented colleges and universities, many of which are really struggling um, right. these days. So you have a reputation as an innovative and an entrepreneurial leader. So I, I want to get your opinion about whether you think there's still a role 
for these smaller mission centric colleges, really the kind of college Chapman started out as. Um, right. and, and if so, how should the leaders of these colleges be thinking about opportunities? Should they all be looking to join in on a mega university or you know, is there another pathway forward that they should be considering as they plan for the future? And here's, here's you know, I'm, I'm really curious, how would you advise them in terms of how to compete with the UMass global universities of the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I, I, would, I, would, I would break it into two groups. There's the, you know, more traditional, you know, those serving the more traditional students. Uh -huh. And, you know, even, you know, back when I was, uh, you know, the COO at, at Chapman, and, you know, we'd work together with our peer institutions, and, you know, the institutions that had a 1000 students or so, I mean, they were just, they were just operationally challenged. Um, because, you know, everything you needed in regards to your student information system and everything else, was really hard to be able to provide when you only had that many students supporting that cost. And those costs kind of continued to increase as technology became more important. Not the same as a non-traditional institution, just look at the traditionals. And so, yeah, I think these smaller institutions are just having a harder and harder time. Um, there's more competition. And probably the, the most important you know, area that seems to be, you know, uh, uh, focused on now is, is the value of the brand. And, you know, I mean, if you have a valuable brand, then you can get away with being smaller, you know, at, at the Claremonts that are near us in, in California, right. you know, you have some of them that are very small. You have Harvey Mudd that's very small, whatever, but it's really an elite institution. They can get away with it. It's got a great name. It's, you know, um, but if you're a small institution and you don't have that brand and you don't have that, you know, because that brand, is basically the value you're delivering to your students. And, you know, I mean, that's how that's how the world works. And so, you know, it's going to become more and more difficult. I mean, and, and then there's 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 so many things that are nibbling away at the uh, uh, number of traditional students. I mean, you know, there's just a the general demographics, right? That are that that you know, they're, that's finally coming home to roost, where the demographics are are going to be producing less college, you know, age students. Uh, you have, uh, they have all sorts of alternatives now, you know, whether it be credentials or other things, you know, a lot of people, you know, I mean, because families can't afford the debt and other things they're, you know, but I mean, look at what, what these professions are paying now and you don't even have to have a degree to get a job right now that, that will change. But, but, you know, still, um, even when the unemployment rates go up a little bit, the fact is that the number of people seeking a traditional education are going to decrease. Um, you have the publics out there at a really low cost um, that you know will continue to be at a really low cost relative to privates. So I'd say smaller privates. It's going to be a tough. It's going to be a, 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 a tough period of time. And if you want to do something, I would do it earlier rather than later. Mm -hmm. Now it's already getting to be a little bit later, but you know the you know time is kind of of the essence to get something done because there can be more and more institutions that need to do something, and um, and you know. And that's just going to make it tougher to find something you think is is appropriate to do. So, yeah, I hate to be the bear, you know, the you know that that's how I think it looks for the tradition institutions serving traditional students. For the non-traditionals, I think as I said earlier, it's going to be you know scale is going to become really important. A national mm -hmm. brand is going to become really important. There will be regional players in the non-traditional world that will do that will do okay, based upon the value of the regional brand. Uh, but in general, there's such efficiency in getting bigger 
um, for you know institutions that are you know that uh, where the education is has so much technology involved that um, the mega university is kind of here to stay, and um, and you know they'll be they'll be you know they'll, they'll, they'll maybe shifting around. Hopefully, you know we'll we'll move into you know that group, and and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But uh, yeah, I expect that it's a period of time where um, it's going to be really tough for the traditionals and and you know for the non-traditionals you're going to have to be focused as well it's uh, uh the it's going to be a fairly rapidly changing environment during the next five to ten years thank you i know you are a passionate advocate for university employer partnerships so can you say something more about this and uh, which partnerships have been most impactful uh for your campus and why Sure. That, by the way, that is one area I think that that's going to take away traditional students. Um, you know, I, I think that over time, I, I think I think it's really important. I think it provides a pathway for students um, who, can, you know, whose family can't afford, uh, uh, you know, traditional higher ed, you know, even with scholarships and everything else, um, that they can get a free education. Um, but more importantly, I think over time, people say, OK, you know, I, I you know, Part of getting your traditional or getting your education is determining what you want to do in life and um, maybe go to grad school or whatever. So what's a better preparation for that? Four years at a traditional institution or four or five or six years working for somebody, getting a free degree, not incurring any debt, learning what the working world is like and then deciding what you want to do. And so I think that that's a pathway that a lot of people are going to end up preferring. And so and, 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 and for the employers, it gets them really great employees. We worked with Guild, you know, in, in regards to, you know, we were the first partner and we worked with Walmart and Disney and Discover. And I was hoping that I would stick around long enough to one of our graduates would become the CEO of Walmart. And, and so one day you never know. But. But, you know, those, those programs have that kind of opportunity, but they have not really an opportunity to kind of disrupt higher ed by having more, uh, you know, more uh, of the you know, potential traditional students move into, into that approach. And they can be really strong in, in, uh, for the uh, employers. You know, if, if the employers work with, you know, high quality institutions that have good retention and good graduation rates, the money they invest in that uh, in in providing that education enables them to attract better employees, retain mm -hmm. them, and if they graduate, they'll keep them for a long time and maybe have them move up into management at the you know at the company. Now, under your leadership, Brandman has developed a reputation. Brandman now UMass Global for its student-centered focus and for adopting best-in-class student success practices, and that's clearly a a thread that runs throughout all of your comments um, in our converse, conversation so far. Now, this is striking, I think, especially considering that adjunct faculty play a pretty important role in the delivery of the learning experience um, at your institution. So can you talk about some of the most effective practices that you have utilized in this regard? Sure, sure. So, so let, me, let me just say that, you know, so yeah, not only do we have great graduation rates, but our graduation rates for our Pell students is higher than the general student population. Our graduation rate for our single parents is equal to the, the graduation rate for our general population. That's something the Lumina Foundation looks at as the uh, indicator of quality student services. 
most of the times the graduation rates for, for single parents is like half the general population in the 20s. So we're we're really proud of that. So we do a lot. You know, some people ask, is it is there any one thing? There's not one thing, it's everything. So let me give you a, a, a kind of a partial list. So we have a, a, an academic advising model. Uh, we maintain 150 students for each academic advisor. The student stays with that advisor, the advisor stays with that student their entire time at the institution. We think that's really important. I mean, we use analytics to follow students and everything else, but when something highlights that a student needs to be called or whatever, they're called by somebody they know. Okay. And, and they can always, you know, and, and we think that makes a big difference. We did the same thing for, we have one-stop student services. So one-stop student services, again, we instituted that many years ago. We had, we trained those folks ourselves because there's not like a category of one-stop employee that has all these different skills. And so it's, um, but, but again, it's the same thing. You know, these, these students aren't on campus. And so they don't know it's time to file for financial aid or this or that or whatever. And so they have, again, you know, uh, the one-stop advisors have 150 to one student uh, to advisor ratio. And that advisor, that one-stop advisor stays with the student their entire time at the institution. So students always know who to call. You know, we use, we use burning glass and employer interviews and other things to design our programs. We're okay looking at the ONET database, you know, uh, the federal jobs ONET database to say, you know, what knowledge, skills, and abilities does a, does a student need in this particular area? We think that's really important. We're not embarrassed about it. I guess it's, it's becoming less of an embarrassment. In the old days, you know, no traditional faculty would say that. And so we think that's really important to, that that they they graduate with knowledge, skills, and abilities they need to do a job. That 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 we think is is key. We do project-based learning. Again, we think that's really important because you know many times you hear stories about how a student did a project and and gave it to his boss or her boss, mm -hmm. and 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 her boss found it helpful. And and you know you that's again it's really a relevant way of of educating students. We embed, uh, you know, what used to be called soft skills, what are you know, called essential skills. Uh, we embedded, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, all the soft skills from the Lumina degree qualification profile and from the uh, AAC and U American College and Universities LEAP, Liberal Education America's mm -hmm. Promise uh, 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 skills as well. And we've you know, modified those over the years now. Uh, we think, you know, and, and we do that in our baccalaureate programs knowing that many of our students transfer in and we do it in a way where even if they transfer in they pick up all those soft or essential skills and as you know employers think those are really important um you know we we have uh co-requisite remediation there's no math 98 math 99 so if a student in a class has you know uh, uh needs uh, assist with assistance with math skills they're triaged out to our, our, our writing and math community where they pick up those skills and they pick up those skills as part of learning something that's important and relevant. They don't pick it, they don't put them in a class of just these skills, which you know are totally irrelevant to these students. They learn it as part of learning something in their marketing class or in their accounting class. And you know, that makes it relevant. They learn it, you know, and and so it's you know, and same thing with writing. That's really important. You know, all of our faculty are trained. Obviously, you have to be trained a bit to triage students out and other things. And so, you know, and we have a lot of adjuncts, which we think provides really important contacts and relevant information from industry. Um, but again, you know, they they go to, all go through a three-week training course.
to make sure they understand what's important to our students, how you communicate with students, how our systems work and everything else. And, 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 and we keep our, our adjuncts. We, the average time an adjunct has been with us now is, is seven years. And that's even though you know, we're growing and we're adding on you know, adjuncts the last few years. So they, the new ones haven't been with us seven. On average, it's seven. So we're really proud of that. Um, we do a student satisfaction survey twice a year. We, we look at the student satisfaction survey comments and whatever, and we're really, you know, we really focus on the results and how to improve what we're doing. And, you know, on a five point scale, we haven't had any of the areas in our student satisfaction survey um, come in with less than a four since 2015. And so anyway, so that, that's some of the things we do, but it's a you know, comprehensive approach to, you know, focusing on what is best for our students. And very intentional. So intentionality, you're using metrics to really tell you about the student experience and intervene. Um, and then I, I wanna go back to what you said earlier uh, about the culture. So in training your faculty and in training the adjuncts, you're making sure that they all are on the same page. It sounds like in terms of those values and yeah, the classroom experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for thank you for going into such detail. I think that's um, it's very very helpful, and uh, maybe there should be a book or something <laughs> about well, the. Well, well, the most people want you know what, what one thing do you do? It's like oh, yeah. well, as you and know, it it's it's often many many things, and you know with each student, uh, you know it's something in the mix that oftentimes is what helps to facilitate success. So. Exactly. Um, or what happens early on in, in their yeah. education versus later when, you know, they're, they're have a lot going on at work, whatever. I mean, you know, the various things you do can help be helpful at different times. For sure. Yeah. So, well, thank you. That was, that was very, very helpful and uh, enlightening. So you have recently announced your upcoming retirement and the UMass Regents have awarded you with the Chancellor Emeritus appointment. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. What's what's next for you? So well, you know, uh, before before I went back to school uh, to get my MBA, you know, uh, my wife and I went around the world for a year. We had the we had the time to do that, and we took we took that time. And uh, she, my wife uh, Hildy, just retired, and so we'll take some time and we'll travel. Um, but I'm going to stay involved. I'm I'm already on one advisory board. I'm you know, uh, one of my good friends you know advised me don't don't fill up your, your dance card right away, take some time to look at opportunities. So yeah, you know, I'm, I like being busy. I like doing stuff. I like getting stuff done. I'm going to need to do something to, you know, fulfill that part of my, you know, uh, of, of what I feel is important. So I'll, I'll you know, hopefully I'll do a, uh, you know, I'll chair a visiting team for the accreditor every so often for WASC and, 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 but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, and, and obviously I'll stay very involved with uh, UMass Global and, and do anything I can to be helpful there as well. So, but I, yeah, I will try to keep busy. Let me end with our signature question. This is a question we ask of every guest. Um, and it's essentially what's on your radar right now that you are especially excited about. So is there a new project, a new idea or innovation that has captured your thinking that you could share with us? Yeah, and it's something we've been working on for a while. It's, it's competency-based education. 
Okay. You know, we think competency-based education has, you know, uh, huge opportunities. We've been involved with it from the very beginning. And, you know, our Lori Dodge was uh, the founding chairwoman of the Competency-Based Education Network and chaired it for, I think, seven years. And so we remain very focused on that. It has opportunities in regards to stacking credentials, stackable credentials to enable students to move at their own pace, to do it in a really efficient way. And where faculty actually spend their time following students and then helping them when they need help. So there's no sage on the stage. There is when a student needs help, you help them. And that's what they do. And, and so, of course, students can always reach out to faculty. So we, you know, we are very focused on that. We actually uh, uh, you know, own the company called Strut, which does the platform for that. And um, you know, one of the things that you know, it, it enables people to do, institutions to do, is to actually license um, degree programs. And so you can get a degree program up and running, you know, including the content uh, without any big capital expense. We think that's really important, but that's all part of, comp you know, competency-based education, yeah. I think is really going to, you know, because it, and, and it's very low cost, right? And mm -hmm. so it's very efficient. It allows, you know, uh, us to compete with, you know, UMass Global to compete with all the, all the publics, even though they're subsidized, we're not. Um, but it also is really advantageous for students um, because it enables them to do the work when they have time to do the work and move at their own pace. And when they need help, they, they automatically get help. Uh, uh, and, and so it's a, and, and obviously, you know, stackable credentials and other things are, are easily a part of that. So that, that remains something I think is going to continue to transform higher education. Now it's still just around the edges, but you can see in places like Texas and other places it's starting to grow. And there, I don't think there's any doubt that it offers advantages that will enable it to take a, a larger share of the higher education market. Yeah, very exciting and another disruptive model that we need to keep our, uh, our eyes on. So Gary, thank you so much. This has just been a wonderful conversation. I have learned a lot and I wish you all the best well, in the, the months that follow. Thank you. It, it really been my, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation again. And uh, and uh, appreciate the time with you. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of Chalup, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.